morning, church. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we pray very simply this morning that you would fasten our attention and our affections to the text before us, that we would stand in awe of of you and of the love that you've displayed for us in Jesus, that we would be amazed at what he would do to call us to repentance, that he would be willing to say things that would get him killed so that we might be saved from death that we would be so amazed by the gospel that we would turn from our sin and and follow him, that we would see the, the immeasurable kindness expressed in the warnings that you give us in Scripture, and that we would, we would embrace these warnings as a kindness from you. Ask, Father, that you would use this text to just draw our hearts closer to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark 11. As you're finding your place there, please stand with me. We're going to read verses 12 through 25. 12 through 25. Mark 11, beginning in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And they passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, 
so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. You may be seated. What is the best way to draw a wayward child back to the road less traveled? Is it to show them the great blessings that would come from repentance? Or is it to warn them of the consequences of refusal? If we were to take the time to read the Bible from cover to cover, we would see that God repeatedly does both. Mankind from the very beginning has been a race turned away from God in rebellion and in sin. And his, his trajectory, man's trajectory, takes him not toward joy and life and God, but toward misery and judgment and hell. And so, the missionary God of all creation repeatedly calls out to us to repent, that is, to turn away from death and sin and suffering and toward God and everything that is truly pleasurable and good. Turn from that and come back to me, God is saying in the Scriptures. And in Jesus Christ, God has ensured that when we do repent, we will find forgiveness because of Christ's perfect life, His atoning death, and His life-giving resurrection, all who repent and trust in Him are credited with His righteousness, they are forgiven of all their sin, and they are given eternal life. And for that reason, we would say that God's call to repentance contains an inherent promise. If you repent, you will find forgiveness in life. At the same time, the call to repentance contains an inherent warning. We find this over and over in Scripture. If you don't repent, you will meet judgment. And some passages in the Scriptures major on the promise of life and others major on the warning of judgment. Our passage this morning is one of the latter. As Jesus comes into Jerusalem, He has come declaring that salvation is here, but at the same time, Judgment has come for all those who reject Him. And so in these chapters from chapter 13, I'm sorry, 11 through 13, there is this heavy theme of coming judgment, judgment for failing to repent and follow Christ. And so may the Lord sober us. What we consider this morning is not merely an historical account affecting only ancient peoples, but it signals an eternal truth that touches everyone. Judgment comes for those who do not repent and follow Christ. Those in this room, those outside this room, those who haven't even been born yet, everyone. That is an eternal truth that applies to everyone. Now, just a, a, a forecast of, of how things are going to proceed this morning, perhaps a, a bit unusual for us. You have two points on your notes. That's not unusual. What is a little unusual is that we have a lot of work to do before we get to that first point. And the second point, we're just going to skim across. And I know it's going to feel awfully uncomfortable, but I'll ask you to bear with me in this. 
the reason that we have to wait so long for that first point is because of how Mark has structured this passage. If you've been with us as we've, as we've walked through Mark, you may remember that occasionally Mark uses a device that some have called a sandwich. So he'll take a story and he'll split it in half and insert another story right into the middle of it. He makes a sandwich. And what he's doing is he's forcing us to interpret both of those stories together. So the outer story is like the bread, the inner story is like the meat, and you have to digest them together. I have, with my own eyes, witnessed someone eating the bun off of a Chick-fil-A sandwich and then eating the chicken. This is deviant behavior. If God intended for chicken to be eaten that way, He would not send it down from heaven in pouches in the form of a sandwich. And so we're not intended to ask of this text, what does the cursing of the fig tree mean by itself? And we're not intended to to ask of the cleansing of the temple in verses 15 through 19. What does that story mean by itself outside of the context of the cursing of the fig tree? But rather, we're supposed to eat the sandwich altogether. So, with that in mind, let's, let's go back to verse 12 and look at those first verses again. Verse 12, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, the last phrase of verse 13 is significant. It was not the season for figs. So, Jesus is looking for figs on a fig tree and cursing that tree when he finds none during a time of year when there's not supposed to be figs on that tree. Now, this is just a normal tree behaving the way it's supposed to, but Jesus curses it. That is a signal to us that Jesus is not just throwing a temper tantrum. Rather, He's performing a sign. Some have referred to this as an acted-out parable. Jesus really is hungry, but He's acting out a message, acting out a parable. What's the message? Well, the Old Testament prophets are helpful to us, and, and Pastor Jason, as he's read to us from the Scriptures already this morning, has pointed some of these things out to us. The, the, the prophets in the Old Testament, they tended to use fruit as a metaphor for evidence of repentance. Evidence of repentance. So the people of Israel and Judah in the Old Testament, they were in the habit of, of keeping up with the mechanical duties of the temple making their sacrifices there, while at the same time engaging in idolatry, injustice, and every other manner of sin. And for that reason, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13, God said to them, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. you got these things side by side, and it's hypocritical. And it's not genuine worship then because you're tolerating all of this unrepentance. So the offering of meaningless sacrifices was there and it was coming from the hearts of those that loved sin. So the prophets were calling them to repent of these things. 
And as they were calling them to repent, they were looking for fruit of repentance in the form of genuine, heartfelt worship and the cessation of all of that ungodliness. So the, the prophets will then portray God as looking for fruit. He comes to His, his vine looking for grapes, and he comes to his fig tree looking for figs, meaning that God is looking for evidence of repentance. And when he doesn't find it, he warns of judgment or he pronounces judgment. If you're taking notes, you might write down Jeremiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. Jeremiah 8, 1 through 14. I wish we had time to look at that whole passage. We don't. But there you'll find the pattern that I just described to the Jews of his day, Jeremiah notes that there has been this call to repentance, there has been a refusal to repent, and now there's going to be judgment in the form of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And that was not an empty threat because we, we, we know that Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in 586 B.C. Now, I'm going to read to you one verse from that chapter so that you can hear this fruit language. This is Jeremiah 8.13. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. So in Mark 11, Jesus is, is grabbing that theme, that Old Testament theme, and He's bringing it into His context. Jesus and His disciples, they have been calling for repentance according to Mark 1.14 and following, and according to Mark 6.12. And now Jesus has come looking for fruit. He doesn't find it, and He is pronouncing judgment on this tree. He curses the tree. So, the figs or the, the, the lack thereof on this tree, this is a picture of the failure to demonstrate repentance. No fruit, judgment follows. So, Jesus is not just losing it over insufficient snack options. He's acting out judgment on, on the unrepentant using a well-known Old Testament metaphor. You can find that same metaphor at work in Isaiah chapter 5 and Micah chapter 7. Isaiah 5, Micah 7. Now, that scene of Jesus cursing the fig tree, that should then color, because it's in a sandwich, it should color how we how we view the, the cleansing of the temple in the coming verses. So now let's look at that, beginning in verse 15. Mark eleven fifteen. 15. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Now with, with the, the fig tree parable laid over the top here, what what? must we understand that Jesus is looking for? He's looking for repentance. And, and we might say, well, the passage really doesn't show Him looking for anything. He just starts casting people out. I would contend that, that we may have something more like a double-decker sandwich here 
that started back in verse 11 from last week. Look back up to verse 11 from last week. Verse 11 reads, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So we have already seen Jesus looking, to, like getting the lay of the land in, in the temple. And I would say that he went to the temple looking for some sign that they have heeded the, the gospel call to repent from Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. Remember what was his message there. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And he looked around at the temple and what did he see? When he looked in the temple in verse 11, he says he looked around at everything. Well, what was everything? He found what is later mentioned in verse 15. There's people buying and selling, money changers, all of that. So clearly, he's unhappy with this when we get to verses 15 and following. He's unhappy with this. And in the context, we should say that this represents no fruit of repentance. But what is it about those things that Jesus finds so troublesome? It is unlikely that Jesus found these activities objectionable in themselves because Deuteronomy 14 and and other places in the Pentateuch actually prescribes these activities. So for for those who lived far away from from the tabernacle or the temple, they were... If they lived too far away to bring or carry their offerings all the way to, to the place where they were to offer their offerings to God, there was to be a place for them to buy their offerings close to the, the altar of God. Further, sacrifices had to be without blemish. And so if you didn't have an animal with no blemishes, there needed to be a place to purchase one. The pigeons were for those who couldn't afford a larger animal. Further, there was a temple tax that was required by Exodus chapter 30, verses 13 through 16. And that had to be paid in the currency of the temple rather than, than at this time, which, which would have been the, predominantly the currency of Rome. And so they needed money changers there so that you could pay the temple tax. So these activities in themselves were not wrong. They were prescribed by the law of Moses. And now th- there is some historical evidence that the rulers of the temple were taking advantage of this system by, by charging exorbitant prices for these services. So the, the going rate for the pigeon was, was, was being ratcheted up on these poor people. And the exchange rate for, for the currency of the temple was being hiked up. And so they were, they were lining their own pockets as they were performing this service in the temple worship. Now, certainly Jesus would have had a problem with that. However, it had to be more than that because Jesus didn't just cast out the money changers and those selling in the temple, but the text tells us that he also cast out those who were buying in the temple. In other words, he cast out those who may have been taken advantage of by those who were hiking up the prices. What should that tell us? Additionally, there's this detail that he, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So what do we make of all of these things? Well, we've got those details. And then we've got Jesus saying, Is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Now those words are drawn from two Old Testament prophets, the context of which actually gives us a clue as to what the deeper problem is. This, 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 all, all of this is taking place 
likely in a place in the temple called the Court of the Gentiles. And that is the problem. See, these activities were necessary, but not in the temple where there is supposed to be prayer and worship going on. In other words, this commerce had replaced prayer in the temple. The the, the temple in its its goings-on had become a thing in and of themselves for these people. The temple was not for them a place for knowing and enjoying and worshiping Yahweh. It had become a place for profit. That Isaiah 1 picture, remember that Isaiah 1 just a moment ago where where I I noted that that God said, "I, I can't abide iniquity alongside solemn assembly. Well, that Isaiah 1 picture of of going through the sacrificial motions while indulging in sin, that's epitomized here in in Mark chapter 11. The true worship of God has been exchanged for money-making schemes under the pretense of temple worship. So, what Jesus finds as He comes to the temple is that they have not heeded His call for repentance nor have they heeded the centuries-old calls of the prophets for repentance. Now, turn with me, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah's historical situation maps very well onto the circumstances of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem here. So well that it's very natural for Jesus to quote it in his situation. If, if you have time later, I'd encourage you to read all of Jeremiah 7. But we will pick up in verse 9. Jeremiah 7, 9. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you haven't known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Jeremiah is saying, do do you think that that the temple has become a place for the unrepentant to gather? those who steal and and murder and commit adultery, so that they can remain unrepentant and think that they're delivered just because they're in the temple? Did you see how Jeremiah's historical situation lines up with what Jesus has found in his day? He's seeing very similar circumstances. Now, Jeremiah is seeing something that is not unique in terms of his understanding of history, because let's continue reading and In Jeremiah 7 and verse 11, Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh. Now, Shiloh is where the tabernacle used to be. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, when I spoke to you persistently, You did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. In other words, 
this abuse of the house of God, sacrifice to God while engaging in ungodliness, it has happened before and resulted in the judgment in Shiloh. So, so judgment was prophesied again by Jeremiah in the 6th century B.C., and that prophecy of judgment was fulfilled. Jesus, by quoting Jeremiah, is saying, just as Shiloh was, was judged for unrepentance, and just as the temple was destroyed in Jeremiah's day, so also this temple in which I stand today in Mark 11 will be judged and destroyed. The other Old Testament passage that Jesus quotes here is from Isaiah 56, which was read for us earlier this morning. And it includes those words, For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. All the peoples, meaning Jew and Gentile. And remember, these things are happening in the court of the Gentiles. The, 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 the people of Jerusalem in Jesus' day, they have become those who have cut off the Gentiles from worshiping the Lord. And you may remember that passage that Pastor Jason read for us from Isaiah 56 early this morning. It said, let not the Gentile be cut off. Well, that's exactly what's happened because, because that area of the temple has become a place for commerce. The court of Gentiles is now being used for buying and selling rather than prayer. Jesus comes looking for the repentance that he has preached. Clearly, there is none. No one believing Embracing God's kingdom in Christ, just as there was that coupling of iniquity with the pretense of solemn assembly in the days of the prophets, so Jesus finds it again. Coupling of iniquity with the pretense of solemn assembly. The fig tree seen then put together with this one indicates that Jesus is implicitly pronouncing judgment upon the temple and its rulers. And if you flip over to Mark 13.1, flip over to Mark 13.1, you find Jesus being far more explicit in His prediction that this is going to happen. Mark 13.1. And as He, as Jesus, came out of the temple, one of His disciples said to Him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Is that an idle threat? Did, did, did that happen? Absolutely it did. In 70 A.D., the Romans sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple again. Just like in 586 B.C. Now, it's, it is possible that we may as we, as we read these things, we think all the way back to Shiloh, which perhaps very few of us are even aware of that. And we think about the, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in Jeremiah's day. And, and then now Jesus pronouncing judgment on Jerusalem and it taking place in AD 70. We may think, wow, there's some harshness in Christ here or harshness in God. If we think that, we must rehearse even better, reread the Old Testament, making note of the centuries and centuries of patient warnings given by God to His people. 
If there is anything that could eclipse the wonder of God's creative and miraculous power, it is His astounding grace and patience demonstrated toward people determined to wrong Him. You should be amazed by God's patience even as He continues to warn. And here, what we're seeing in the book of Mark is that God goes so far even as to send His own Son to call them to repent. But what we find toward the end of this section is that the, Jew, the Jewish leader's response is not to repent, but to plot to kill Him. So determined are they that they realize we're going to have to be careful because of how popular He is with the people. Their determination to kill Jesus, it's like, a, it's like an exclamation point on the fruitlessness that Jesus finds. And it is all the more reason for the coming judgment on this temple and on its rulers. So, now we're ready for the first point on your notes. And these points are not proportioned in the time of the sermon, so don't worry. We're getting close to being done here. That first point is that judgment comes for all who reject the kingdom of God in Christ. Judgment comes for all who reject the kingdom of God in Christ. Consider again that biblical pattern of call to repentance, warning, and eventual judgment. And I'll remind you occasionally what we find is call to repentance, promise of blessing if you do repent, and then blessing for repentance. But then frequently there is this pattern of call to repentance, warning if you do not, and then eventual judgment. And we didn't come anywhere close to considering every iteration of that pattern. We, we just, we would never have enough time. When God says judgment will come, if one does not repent, it always does. And here in chapter 11, we'll see it again in chapter 12, Jesus makes that same warning. And in 70 AD, judgment did come. The New Testament is replete with statements to that same effect, indicating that a final judgment is going to come when Jesus returns again. You might write down Hebrews 12.25, which tells us that if, if, if they did not escape, when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. Romans 2.4 reads this way, Or do you presume upon the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Given God's record of faithfulness to His Word, when He says He's going to do something, He does what He says He's going to do. Given, given that record, only a fool would think that he, he could escape the judgment of God. And only a fool would understand God's patience to mean that judgment will never come. Conversely, given the biblical witness of God's quickness to forgive the repentant, only a fool would believe that the repentant won't find God eager to forgive. 
when, when Jesus came to the temple, he found, he found no fruit of repentance and judgment came upon the people, came upon the temple and its leaders. When he returns again on the last day, let him find us walking in the fruit of repentance, having followed him gladly in faith. The, the Jewish leaders, it seemed, held that as, as long as they had the temple, as long as they had that building, they were good. Their, their hearts could be far from God, steeped in rebellion. As long as they maintained those outward motions of, of sacrifice and worship, they were going to be okay. Some people hold the same thing today. It may look a little bit different, but it's the same sentiment. As long as I go to church, as long as I give financially, as, as long as I engage in Jesus' talk, as long as my family, in some sense, identifies as conservative, I'm, I'm good with God. No, you're not. Have you repented and trusted in Christ? Have you turned from your self-directed life and your sin? Have you turned toward Christ recognizing that His righteous life and atoning death alone can reconcile you to God? Have you surrendered all that you are to Him as Lord and King? Don't make the mistake of, of clinging to iniquity and the pretense of solemn assembly. Repent and trust in Christ. Now, we have, we have looked at the bulk of the sandwich now, but we need to come back. We need to, we need to continue to that last piece of bread because the text brings us back around to the fig tree. So look, look there with me beginning at verse 20. And they, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now, our, our temptation here is going to be to commit the abomination of the, of the, of the Chick-fil-A sandwich deviant and to remove this from the rest of the passage. So, so here's how we should not understand this that we've just read, these last few verses. This is not Peter amazed at such a crazy miracle and Jesus saying, that ain't nothing. You, you, you could do far more than curse a fig tree if you only believe. To, to understand it that way is to eat the bread without the chicken. This is a sandwich. And what the Lord says here about faith, prayer, and forgiveness has to be understood in the context of the impending judgment of the temple. The withered fig tree, remember, it pictures the certainty with which the temple and the Jewish leaders are going to meet with the judgment of God. So ju just as the, the, the fig tree withered, 
just as that has already happened, as, as, as Peter and the other disciples and Jesus are looking at it, just as surely as that has happened, so also the Jewish religious establishment, the temple, it is going to be destroyed. Judgment is certain to come upon the unrepentant. What does that have to do with verses 22 through 25 that we have just read? Well, we have to understand that for these people, for the Jews of, of Palestine, the temple was the locus of their communion with God. They went there to pray. They went there to be forgiven. And if, if the temple is going to be destroyed, how are the people going to continue to enjoy communion with God? That's the implicit question posed by the context and the question that is answered by verses 22 through 25. So here's the second point in your notes. In the kingdom, communion with God depends upon faith and forgiveness, not the temple. In the kingdom, communion with God depends upon faith and forgiveness, not the temple. That, that thing here in, in verse 23, about whoever says, to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea, that is not a random Example of just a crazy prayer request. He says, whoever says to this mountain, not a mountain, but this mountain. He's talking about the temple mount. Whoever says to this mountain be, cast, be, be, be taken up and thrown into the sea. The sea being a, a common biblical picture of, of judgment. So he's connecting this passage to what he has said about the judgment of, of the temple. So all of this goes together. The choice of that example of an extraordinary prayer request is not random. The whole thing goes together. So what he's saying is, big picture, is that faith is making the, the, that Old Testament system obsolete. Your prayer is not answered because you're at the temple, but because you trust in God. Likewise, your sin is not forgiven because you're at the temple, but because you forgive others. Verses 22 through 25 can be extremely uncomfortable for some of us. They can be easily misunderstood. These, these related concepts that are communion. Now, I'm using the word communion, not union. And for those of you who know the difference, I want you to pay attention to that. Our communion with God depends upon our faith and forgiving others. Those concepts raise huge questions so, even though this message is almost done, we're not done with this passage. I want to assure you of that. We've covered the sandwich. We have seen how all of this fits together, but we're going to spend some time in a future message looking more closely at verses 22 through 25. So, if your blood pressure is rising a little bit over these verses, either over the content of them or that I haven't talked much about them, just... Uh, have have some some faith and understand that uh, the Lord willing we will come back to these we will give these verses the attention that they deserve. The big idea of the sandwich is that judgment comes upon the unrepentant. Those who reject the kingdom of Christ will have judgment visited upon them. Now, if we believe that, how will we respond? There could be any number of ways to respond to that. I would suggest five to you. I would suggest five to you. 
First of all, in light of our own sin and, and the sin of this world, we will respond by marveling at the great patience of God. We will marvel at the great patience of God. What great restraint He shows as He holds back His wrath, calling all mankind to, to turn to Him. The patience of God in the meeting out of judgment is worth our meditation and awe. Second, we'll recognize that, that while God is patient, the clock will run out just like it did in Shiloh, just like it did in Jerusalem. Judgment will come. We must be cognizant of that. We must take that with us. A third thing, the patience of God, the certainty of judgment should lead us to repent. Should lead us to repent. We'll, we'll turn from our sin in response to these things. We'll turn from our sin and we'll run to Christ in faith. And that is, of course, the, the initial entry into the family of God. It is also the lifelong impulse of the follower of Christ. The lifelong impulse of the follower of Christ is to turn from sin and run to Christ in faith. The follower of Christ who, who hears a message like this, should be thankful for God's grace and for salvation from judgment that we have in Christ. But that follower in Christ should also ask, is my life characterized by that continual repentance and faith? Is, the, is there some pocket of my life, even now, as I, even now as, I, as I stand reconciled to God eternally, even now is there some pocket of my life where I am resistant to repent and trust the Lord. Fourth, fourth way that we'll respond to these things, we'll urgently share the gospel with those around us who don't know Him. We'll not presume upon the patience of God on their behalf by waiting and waiting and waiting to bring the good news to our friends and family and co-workers. And further, when we do bring that good news, we'll be clear about the call of, of Christ to repentance. We'll be clear about what happens to all those who refuse. And we'll do so understanding that that's a loving thing to do. Christ modeled it for us. Fifth, while we lament injustice in this world, we will not worry that injustice will never come. We will trust that justice comes will rest in the knowledge that our righteous God will bring judgment. In a few moments after I pray, we're going to spend a few moments in silent reflection. I would encourage you just before the, before the Lord, pray and seek which of those or other responses He would have you to, to emphasize in your own mind and heart and actions as we leave this place today. Let's, let's pray. Father, we confess to you our own tendency to our own tendency toward imbalance. And there are there are many of us, Father, who would prefer to, as as we present the good news to others and as we as we reminisce about it ourselves, to major on the promise of blessing to those who who repent. And we're so thankful that 
Your, your word is full of those words, promise of blessing toward those who repent. We're thankful, Father, that your word is perfectly balanced and that it also just repeatedly offers to us and to, to all in this world repeated warnings, gracious warnings of what comes to those who refuse to repent. We pray, Father, that you would help us in our speech and our thinking be as balanced as your word is, as balanced as the Lord Jesus Christ was. Help us to be as compassionate as he. Help us to be so compassionate, Lord, that we are not afraid to share the good, good news in all its fullness. We pray for any who may be here among us who have not yet heeded that call and who, who stand this moment under the condemnation of, of your just wrath that you would move them to see their dire situation. You would move them to repentance, understanding what awaits them if they do not. That you might give them just a glimpse, Father, of what eternity would be like outside of your loving presence and under the expression of your wrath. Father, would you also help them to see that the mighty kindness, love, and blessedness of the Lord Jesus. Move them to turn toward him in faith. Father, help us to love these things and live in light of them. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.